my line on fonts is that like fonts are nice, but you really only need six. So you don't, so don't, you don't need to go down the rabbit hole too far. Just like pick one of the six that are good and you'll be fine. My name is Will Hindmarch. I'm a writer, narrative designer, graphic designer, and game designer. My name is Nathan Paletta. I'm a game designer, self-publisher, and graphic artist. Whatever are we going to talk about on the Design Games podcast this time? This time we go down the rabbit hole of how to incorporate, think about, and strategize using visual design in your game design process before getting to publication. This is kind of specifically stuff that is not art direction. Yeah. Because even if you're working with somebody else, we're not talking about now that you know what your game is, turn it into find the illustrations that support and that stuff. That's production. We're not talking about how do you express what your game is to other people visually. We're talking about how do you use things that are visual to find out what your game is, right? Or at the very least in a way that doesn't restrict the discovery of things that your game is about that you didn't realize when you set out to first convey it to whether it's a playtester or yourself in your notebook or whatever it is, right? Like, because mm-hmm. there's mind mapping is already sort of part of this visually is the aspect where you create the relationships between topics and lay them out visually, mm-hmm. um, which on the one hand is non-binding because it's just a sketch for yourself. It's just a, an organizational process. But then how that connects to something like when you're doodling a character sheet. It's not a playtest character sheet. It may not be for anybody but you. But on the one hand, every decision, every little box you draw, every little circle you make is both a little bit assertive, which is good, and a little bit winnowy, which is potentially good, in that mm-hmm. you have assigned a certain amount of the space in your doodle to a thing that is now not going to something else. Yeah. So in a way, you're, those assertions are saying, this game is about the things that I drew boxes for, but that's non-binding. It's not like you can't just doodle another one on the next page of your notebook. That's what's interesting to me about this topic of the, the, the role of visual design in game design as opposed to in game presentation. Mm -hmm. I guess what I want to know, so in part so that I don't talk too far afield, what do you imagine is the outermost edge of the topic? So to me, it's part of the process all the way along, but I guess where it tips over into production considerations would be where, and I'm just kind of talking this out now because I haven't thought about it in this way before, but when you tip over from... I need to express an idea about my game. Doing it visually is one way. Let me figure out the way I can use visuals or sketches or found art or even commissioned art Mm -hmm. to better describe what I'm going for. When you tip over to, I know what I need to describe. I'm going to find or commission or create the visuals to describe it. Right. When you go from asking questions to solving problems. I see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a way to kind of roughly make a division, I think, between like when you commission art, that's probably more of a production consideration than when you find or create art without paying for it. Right. But that excludes a broad middle of there are people who commission art early in the process and then the game never goes anywhere. And, Mm -hmm. you know, they're essentially supporting working artists uh, in a way that does not remunerate them, which is fine. And there's people who do an entire production, you know, a whole print run with public domain, right. no cost art or no art. Mm-hmm. And that's fine. Mm-hmm. Right. So like, that's not like a hard line. I think that's like an intuitive switch. Um, yeah. But there are strategies within both worlds. So I don't want to draw the line by who's getting money. Right. 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 But I think as a game designer, when you're going from, using 
non-textual elements to circumscribe what you're doing, right? Like, mm-hmm. like you're saying, mm-hmm. creating a character sheet, for example, is you have to make choices about what to take on and leave off. Once you know what needs to be on it, then you can express what's on it with the art. Right. And that's the next phase. I'm going to draw a, a distinction in a second between the design and development of a game and, and the scope of our conversation so that I don't yes. talk too far afield in just a second. But just so I've, I'm going to restate it to see if I've got it. Mm-hmm. Does this belong in my game? And to communicate my game to you, I believe you need this. Like a mood board. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to get into some of the topics and stuff that, that are definitely on the, this conversation side of the, right. the wide, fuzzy march land where all kinds of where, where other mm-hmm. conversations happen. A mood board, right, is where, sort of like we talked about before, we've talked about this in a previous episode, but where you bring in your inspirations and you put them on the wall, or you put them in Pinterest, or you put them in uh, Evernote or whatever it is, and you say, uh, I love the design of this armor, or I love the way mm-hmm. that, you know, I love the idea of pixies riding cats or whatever it is, right? So you've got these ideas that, that inspired you, but are not your visual designs for the game yet, right? and may never be. They may or may not make the final cut. They may, they may change into something adjacent but different, whatever. So you've got that, which is, does this belong? And then when you've established kind of the, the, the figure of your game, the, the shape of your game, you start saying, okay, now in order to convey both legs, both arms, the armor, the cat, the pixie, or whatever, all this stuff, you're like, I don't have yet a good visual presentation of that. So mm-hmm. I, and, I need, and I need one so that the audience, so that the, the players know what I'm talking about, right? Mm-hmm. And so we're going to talk about that first one. And even though the space between the two of them is strangely shaped and, fu- and porous and fuzzy bordered mm-hmm. um we're gonna not talk about the second one okay yes okay cool i believe we're on the same page awesome and that did exactly what i'm hoping what i was hoping it would do which is that demonstrate that there's a difference between what we're the divide that we're gonna have for airtime right versus the fact that the division that i post to you is completely artificial for the purposes of airtime not right. for the purposes of how design works yeah when it stops or when the handoff happens this unless you're working in some very structured fashion where you're like handing off a project Right. Right. If you're working in in some capacity where you're responsible for like creating the manuscript and then you're handing it off to an art director, right? Like in that case, there's 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 a bright line between who needs to think about what and when. But I think if, for the vast majority of our world, the person creating the game is probably also in charge of the visual presentation. Or at the very least, if that handoff occurs, it is not like one of them can't email the other. I, I, yeah. I I'm aware of production houses where essentially once you hand it off. Yeah, you're not part of the conversation. You're not anymore. part of the conversation anymore. But yeah, by and large, mm-hmm. that remains in the mix. Right. So in in that case, like for me, right, like I I keep my hand in the visual presentation from start to finish, both mm-hmm. because I'm a visual thinker, so that's part of my process, and also because you know I'm also the art director and I'm also the layout person for my own projects. So for me, there is that marshy middle, but there is a tipping point. You know, if you imagine our 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 uh, diamond diagram that's on the website you could you could put a dotted line vertically across it at some point where you're where those decisions where the gathering information and then narrowing down to a validation point where those go from gaining information and inspiration asking questions about the game design and narrowing down to a game design validation to gaining them about the the product that you are going to transmit into the world and narrowing down into a some kind of production a beta draft or a proof or or whatever. So we're kind of talking about what's happening before the diamonds get too narrow. Not just the expansion, but also yeah, the you're refinement. Still, right, because the, the whole left hand of that diagram. Right, because the refinement is still important, and I think that's the power of keeping production considerations, not just art, but also like what is the final form of this thing going to be, or what are what is a small array of choices of what it could be. Right, in mind is that 
they let you make those decisions about what to cut right. in a way that is less wasteful of your own time over the course of the process. And just as a gross example, you design your game and you get all this great art, um, you know, public domain art, say, and it's it's perfect. And then you haven't really thought about it. You're like, oh, I'll, I'm going to do like a print-on-demand book at the end. And then you have to choose like, oh, is this going to be a full-size book or a six-by-nine book or a right. landscape book? And you look at it and you're like, oh, it's going to cost this much to do this kind of book, so I'm going to do the smaller kind because it, it'll be a little thicker and it'll feel better and it'll be cheaper for me to print. And you're like, oh, my my art is not the right aspect ratio right? Right for these pages. If you earlier in the process just make even an arbitrary decision, just be like, this is going to be a six-by-nine print-on-demand book, that means you don't have to make a whole bunch of late-stage decisions that are going to change the nature of what you've already decided. And, and you're aware at that point, if you make decisions of a certain level what and where they're going to cascade like right the scale of decision you're making becomes clearer to you right like it is it becomes a more important decision about for example the aspect ratio of the art and the word count can still be rather fuzzy because if you're like mm -hmm. oh it's just going to be print on demand it kind of doesn't matter how long it is it'll i'll just pay you know to print whatever it is versus something where like i know i need to have a page count divisible by four for offset printing or right. whatever then that changes how you lay out your manuscript for playtests, say, because you're also finding out how long your actual printed page is. Stuff like that where, in one sense, the game doesn't care, right? Like, the content of the game you're designing doesn't care how many pages it's going to be, mm -hmm. doesn't care if it's going to be a print product or a PDF product, that kind of thing. If you're spending your time making game design decisions instead of revising your text to fit a certain format that you didn't think you were going to do mm -hmm. six months ago and now you are i think you're spending your time more wisely and you're able to put more of your energy into the game part so that's my that's my advocation for making decisions like that early or at least giving yourself the ability to make principled decisions about it later so what is something visual that you think is either too fixed or too big, too broad, too heavy, whatever it is, to think about during design? Like, what is something I should push out of this conversation and worry about later? Is there something, yeah. that, especially one that, that you think is that, is that is less obvious, then <laughs> don't commission your cover text and your, your cover <laughs> art until you have an idea how thick the spine needs to be or whatever yeah. it is. Yeah, I think not commissioning custom art until you know the printing parameters is pretty standard piece of advice I'd give. You don't want to commission full-page color art and then end up printing a book with quarter-page black-and-white thumbnails of full-page color art. That doesn't help anybody. But I think what you want to do is play to your strengths until you need to shore up your weaknesses, if that makes sense. Like, some of my projects live entirely in InDesign because I'm laying them out as I'm writing them because I have that skill set, right? I would never advocate for anyone to do that if they don't know how to use that software because... There's no like word processing automation and you have to make a bunch of design decisions about the page size and stuff like that, right? That I'm comfortable doing as part of my process for some projects, not for every project. If you're a writer and your strength is putting words on the page, then the idea of thinking about templates and formats and margin and bleed and spot color and, you know, all those kinds of things, like why bother? You know, you can wait because the game itself is going to live in the words. So concentrate on the words. And you can work out great ideas in a very bare bones way. Like you can just sketch your flowcharts or use um, 
Excel to make your character sheet or like whatever, whatever you're comfortable doing that gets you from idea to validation efficiently and in a way that lets you revise is going to be what you should be doing for a while. How does that reflect with your experience? I definitely do a mix. It depends on the project of whether or not something lives in the word processor or lives in Photoshop or lives in InDesign at what stage. Specifically, I can give an example. I've done a a convention version for playtesting of Adventurous that looks too finished. Mm-hmm. That's not like I, that. I know that the text isn't finished, and it's clear if you play it, you're like, this power doesn't work. Your, your game is broken. I'm like, well, yeah, it's the alpha. It's the pre-alpha. Mm-hmm. Of course, not. Of course, not all the powers work. I haven't played them yet. I don't know, right? And they're like, well, it looks pretty done. I'm like, well, that's a totally different thing. But I learned the viable lesson, which is maybe it doesn't look so done mm-hmm. if it's not so done. You know, where, where it's like, you know, I've got handsome textures and fonts and everything and art and stuff or whatever. I mean, in this case, it's you know public domain art, but it's um. It creates the illusion and expectation that that that, that the playtesters interface with, that is not helpful. And I re- and what's funny about this is I knew that, and then I somewhere I had forgotten it and gotten excited about how it could look. And I was wearing, working on the visual design and the game design at the same time, right? Because they're very closely related. But it was still possible to get ahead of to have one sprint ahead mm-hmm. and get too far because the visual design. I think I'm still pretty close to what it's going to look like in the end visually, mm-hmm. but mechanically it's changed drastically. So you see this a lot more with people who have, I think, like visual arts backgrounds, but you can very easily complete a graphic look Mm -hmm. of a thing without having any content to it, right? Like that's what a mock-up is, you know, in advertising, if you're mocking up a a branding identity for something. And so you, you know, have all these different variations of... You have all the labels for the lemonade, but the lemonade doesn't exist. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Or you just have like, here's what these three standard size shipping boxes are going to look with your, with your logo and branding on them. But like no one's actually made a decision about what size those boxes are going to be or where they're going to get them or, you know, what the actual copy on them is going to be. It's all lorem ipsum. I was going to say lorem ipsum exists for a reason. Right. So... If you're not familiar with that, you can look that up. It's basically just a, a standard copywriting, graphic design, nonsense text. To it, It's that Latin-looking, not Latin right. text that fills in when you say fill text on a lot of programs. Just right. fill in placeholder text, yeah. And the purpose of it is to give give your eyes the, the sense of what that's going to look like when the final text is there without right. having to spend a bunch of time generating actual text, right? Uh, so you can do that for your game. You know, you can make a super pretty character sheet that has math on it that doesn't work because right. you haven't actually done the math part, right? Well, in this case, I mean, just as an example, right? Sometimes the math is, like, you've got the math down, but it's not fun. Yeah. Right? And mm-hmm. that's just an example of stuff that you can get ahead of it. Uh, one one leg can get ahead of the other too far, and you can trip. So you can trip, but also that can drag the project along. Mm-hmm. Oh, like, that's, that's like yeah. the that's the, the, the helpful part, I think, is if you do spend the time to make, like, a really nice sheet that pulls people in prompt makes a promise right like the the sheets for adventurous they kind of like make a promise to the players like oh this is the game i'm gonna get i mean i haven't seen them but based on our conversations like the indiana jones yeah. adventure thing looks nice i'm on board because it looks like you've thought about it and it's promising me this experience the experience that they're getting promised if it's not delivering that gives you vital information on the design side mm-hmm. of like when they did these things they got what they thought they were getting based on how my sheet was telling them what they were going to get. Yes. When they did these things, they were satisfied with the delivery of the game. And when they did these things, they were not. So then your choice as a designer is to be like, oh, how are those powers that, that were broken? How can I fix them to deliver the experience? Or 
is there some, for the sake of argument, is there some middle ground where like, no, this works correctly, right. but they were unsatisfied with it. How do I need to revise my presentation of the game so that that's a surprising outcome and not a disappointing outcome? Right. There's, um, if you look, there are a lot of great sites. Um, I see them mostly through Tumblr, but that uh, are for logo types and branding and design for products that do not exist. Yes. They're just portfolio pieces. And, they're, and many of them are gorgeous, in part because they have the luxury of being able to design without ever having to go to print. And also, so they can design stuff that would be too expensive for a, a, a company to actually put on a bottle or put mm-hmm. on a box and send out into the world. But so you get these gorgeous designs that that have no weights tying them to reality, and it's part of what makes them gorgeous. Um, also, because they can't get too far ahead of the product because the product doesn't and never will exist. Mm-hmm. And what uh, that always makes me think of design-wise for, for game design is that relationship between – if you make a beautiful character sheet, especially if you think that you only have to do it once – and then you're defending your character sheet and you're changing the game to fit the character sheet. You've tricked yourself into changing the content for a wrapper that you designed before. And the wrapper, like you say, it can be super valuable to design a beautiful wrapper or a beautiful package early. But if the game is just proving to it, to you and to itself, that the package design also needs to change three times before you get into production and stuff, mm-hmm. defending your earliest package design, whether it's a character sheet or a book cover or a box or whatever it is, could be working against you. So there's this notion where you, where we can trick ourselves even into thinking, well, I've made this character sheet and I love it. And that's great. But that's that may be a darling that you have to yeah. fight with, that you have to put down. You, you can go ahead and frame that and put it on your wall and then, right. and then revise it so that it reflects the game that you're actually designing. Yeah. And does the job that you're trying to deliver on. And I think any aspect of design actually can do that in the sense that you can get a char- you can design a game that becomes untenable at the character sheet. And then then you have questions like, so do I just accept that I'm going to have a two-page front and back four-sided character sheet? Right. Is there such a thing as too early to make decisions about things like dimensions and print versus PDF or app or whatever it is? Like how early is too early? Does that even exist? Let me phrase it this way. Have you ever made a decision too early that mm-hmm. you can think of that you regretted making as early as you made it? I think there is an element of you're never going to know what you might be missing out on if you hmm. make the decision too early, right? Would the final perfect form of this game be better served by being a app on a tablet versus a print-on-demand book? Right. It might be. Like, that might be a better version of the game. But when I started the game design process, if my goal was to make a book and I make a book, I haven't hurt myself, you know? Yeah. Like, I'll never know until I try it. So in that sense, I don't think there's really a too early just because I'm a big fan of giving yourself parameters to design in. Because you can spend a lot of time spinning your wheels on decisions that are ultimately a little immaterial, Mm -hmm. I think. Like, whether I have a six by nine or an eight and a half by five and a half book. And, uh, And that never stops. You yeah. could always you could keep fighting about it about whatever decision about whatever alternative you didn't undertake. You right. Worry about that forever. Yeah. So you just so for so, me. So, so so don't. Right. Yeah. So for me, I just make a decision. Right. Like yeah. either I have this template. I know. Yeah. I can send it to the printer. So I'm just going to use you know the six by nine size or whether I'm like this is never going to be a printed book. So I'm going to do it to print on people's printers PDF or whatever it may be. So I kind of have like three or four buckets that I'm like, this game is probably going to be this. And then I'm just going to use that for my formatting, essentially. Right. See it through. And then the question isn't whether or not this game is going to be another thing. It's when mm-hmm. you get to the next game, you say, I learned from the last game. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and also the question of like revising the game, because that's something I'm doing with Masks of the Mummy Kings right now, where I'm revising it from being a submission that went into Worlds Without Master to being a standalone product. And so 
I'm not changing the game, but I am changing the production part. The thread that I see here that's interesting to me is the notion of making decisions and knowing when and how long to stick to them. Some decisions you make, and this is a lot of this is just practice, right? But Mm -hmm. some you decide I'm going to make a six by nine book. And the later I make a change to that decision, the more costly it is. Other things it's like, I love this character sheet, but it's got to go because I'm not going to do gold foil printing on the character sheets in real life. So I want to get it down to something that will fit in a six by nine book. And I want the character sheet to be at that same aspect ratio or whatever it is. Um, the decisions that you can and cannot budge on and should and should, I don't want to say should, you know what I mean? But that have the, the cost benefit ratio that work for you so mm-hmm. that it's not too costly for you to budge on a decision that you made early for a better decision later. And that's one really good reason to do ugly stuff right. because the downside of changing an ugly thing is much smaller emotionally than the downside of changing a beautiful thing. Yeah. I mean, we talk a lot in, in early work just doing like rough sketches, rough drafts, pencil sketches, mind maps in your notebook. But like maybe your character sheet for playtesting is just a photocopied version of the pencil sketch you made. Right. And then what you learn from playtesting and seeing how people use that sheet and what they, because then they're comfortable scratching things out Mm -hmm. and writing in new things. Or maybe you're like, oh, I changed that and never made it onto the sheet. Change that number to six. Everyone put an X over it and write six next to it. And then when you get it back, you're like, oh, this person put it here, but this, these three people put it over here. That makes way more sense. Right. Giving other people a thing that looks unfinished can be very valuable because then they don't feel like they are breaking your beautiful concept by messing with whatever it is. So that's this this idea of um, rapid iteration and and, uh, low fidelity prototyping Mm -hmm. comes into game design as well, where if you do have just your stapled printed out Google Doc, people are much more comfortable giving you feedback on that than if you come with a glossy, even if it's a beta or even it's a a one-off print that you did just so that you had something nice for a convention. Right. If you have your um, glossy printed soft cover with beautiful cover art that you already commissioned, people aren't necessarily as comfortable giving you maybe the kind of feedback that you're looking for in that moment because they're like, oh, it's already basically done. Right. Right. Imagine, for example, somebody with the skills of a Nathan Paletta whose beta looks like somebody else's <laughs> delta, right? That already you're like, wow, this this thing looks great. And you're like, well, no, that's just kind of the placeholder thing until I figure out, right? But then yeah. I might mistake your beta for a glossy print-ready thing. So even though you've said to me expressly, I need all the feedback I can get, I might go, yeah, except you don't want feedback on these fonts, right? Because right. clearly, clearly, look how the, they, they interact. You've picked a thing. Uh-huh. You put a lot of work into it. And it's like, no, I just dug that font or whatever, right? Yeah. Like, Yeah, and that's also kind of a personal preference thing, right? Because the game design process, often it helps me to have the visuals in mind, you know? So I go to visuals a lot earlier in the process than I did in the past when I was still working out my identity as a graphic artist sure. as well as you know working out how this game design thing works. What do we say to people who are not also visual artists or visual thinkers about the value of this process of thinking about not just like the visuals in terms of the art, but thinking about like the UI of your game. Even if you're not invested in something looking in a certain way, the things that you have on the table are the interface for the players to engage with your game. So 
how do you do that when maybe you're not someone who gets a whole lot of value out of storyboarding, out of doing a mood board, out of getting public domain art, out of laying out a character sheet. Right. Like you're, out of out of commissioning concept art. Yeah. If you're lucky enough. Yeah. If you're a words on the page person, where does this conversation hook into that process? I have a very practical answer and I have a kind of highfalutin answer. Before I want to ask this because this is the thing that I need for reference. What was the last game that you made, if any, that lived primarily in the text? Like, what was the last game that you made in a word processor or in Google Docs as opposed to taking quickly into InDesign or something like that? How long have, How long has it been? So the actual text of Worldwide Wrestling was basically a Word document. I used Scrivener to do some rearranging. Yeah. But both that and the supplement uh, are basically just a long Word document. I, I get to hedge because the the character sheets were were kind of a big revision visual thing through the entire process. But like the actual text of the game basically lived in a document until I was ready to lay it out. And then I made all those decisions in the layout. And some of those decisions went back into the character sheet to like unify the look. That was my next like question. That. Yeah. Part of that is the system, the Powered by the Apocalypse system. And I think especially even for worldwide wrestling is... When we say that the game lives in the text uh, for a character sheet like Worldwide Wrestlings, a fair amount of the housing text is on that character sheet. Mm -hmm. You don't have to open the book much during play. Mm -mm. So that's an area where we can see kind of, if you will, in the, again, another Venn diagram, but where the overlap between living in the text and the visual arrangement of that stuff in the character sheet, where they interact and where they intersect is not just visible, but visceral, almost to the point that we don't think about it as, as an end user, that I don't worry about it. I don't think, why are these moves in the order they're in? Right. Maybe it's because that's how they mm -hmm. fit on the page. Maybe it's because I'm, I'm supposed to develop a relationship between them, whatever it is. What mm -hmm. I do instead is I just assume that they are in an order that has a purpose and I implicitly absorb a lot of information. One of my quirks, one of the things that I find myself doing over and over is when I have lists of things in text, uh, they're generally alphabetical. If there's no other reason to arrange them in a certain way, right, they're just kind of alphabetical by their heading or title or whatever they are. But I will move them around all day to fit on a reference sheet. So that they fit with like decent spacing and yep. take up the page in a nice way. Because to me, that is more important than the alphabetical hierarchy of kind of an arbitrary list. I'm beaming right now <laughs> because you, you walked right into my segue. It's beautiful. Those lists are the first lesson for teaching visual design to someone who lives in the word processor, which is that if I make a bullet list of, let's say, character attributes, my game has five attributes. I have two physical, two social, and one mental, let's say. What order do I list them in? Alphabetical? That might accidentally say some things about how they interact. Do I list them by length? Do I list them in groups of mental, physical, and social? Do I, right? All these options mm -hmm. are options. Well, we, you're getting individual design now. Yeah, so Relationships, the, yeah. The way you arrange those five things creates meaning. As you say, if you have an alphabetical list, the person reading through them, if they don't realize it's alphabetical, right. is going to go, why are these things in this way? Why do I have a mental thing, then a, then a physical thing, then two social things, then a mental thing? You know, like if that's how it breaks out. If you align them across, like in many character sheets, right? Like mm -hmm. across the top of a page, so they're all on the same horizontal level. That arrangement is is creating a uh, sameness. Like mm -hmm. you're kind of saying these are all equally important in this way. Um, if you create a 
star with them. And so you have one at the top and then like the two points of the star and then two lower points of the star. Right. Right. And now you have the ability to draw the connections between any one point and the other two points. Uh, if you were into like a speedometer on a dashboard, that's always one that I've liked that games mm-hmm. don't, we don't do very often because that's just not the way. I, I don't think it's actually helpful organization, but imagine if you had one that way mm-hmm. for a game in which this stat leads to this stat leads to this stat leads to this stat or whatever, right? Yeah. To show escalation. Mm-hmm. Or you have them grouped by physical, mental, social, mm-hmm. and then those three groups have their hierarchy, and then within the group they each have a primary, secondary, or whatever. All those things are things that you can express visually that you can also express in text, but expressing them in text is going to take up a number of words. If it's, and many of these you can do, though, mm-hmm. still in your word processor without having to learn new software, but still do them essentially visually. Sure. You can, use, yeah, yeah. you can use commas to do them across the top of the character sheet. You could mm-hmm. just use tabs, whatever. But so that, yeah, you can use what you're comfortable with. So that this is the kind of bridge to me of getting from how do I describe the relationship between these and how do I show it? Mm-hmm. And that you don't necessarily have to buy and learn Photoshop to do it. Right. Yeah. Thinking about the visual stuff when that's not necessarily your thing you can get really intimidated i think uh because there are lots of opinions and a lot of things about like doing things right here is the right way to lay out this text here is the right kind of font here is the right way to make a pdf available like all that stuff my yeah my experience with that is that you will get more value out of following your instincts and doing what is best for you in this moment than you will out of trying to find out what the best way to do it is. As I think I've said a couple times, I'm a big fan of arbitrary or semi-arbitrary decisions that constrain your design space. So if you arbitrarily say like, I'm going to make this in my word processor and it's going to be a PDF and that's the game that I'm going to do, you can change your mind later and that's fine. And you might run into some of this sunk cost, you know, time issue, but you can also just say like, it's going to be a PDF. It's going to be an eight and a half by 11 because that's the defaults on my word processor. It's going to use the fonts I have on my computer. Mm-hmm. It's going to use a character sheet I can make in Excel. There's nothing wrong with that if that moves you along in your design process. Right. If you get stymied in your design process by trying to learn software, that's the worst. Don't do that. <laughs> that can come later. I think this is a great example of, of overlapping elements in design philosophy. I'm, I'll practice aside, but which is that I come back to that quote from Neil Gaiman, which is the one that says, when somebody tries to tell you that there's a problem with your thing, they're almost always right. When they try to tell you what the fix is, they're almost always wrong. Mm-hmm. That translates in a way to visual design is that when people are saying, I didn't like the design of this book. Well, they're absolutely correct. They didn't like it. Everybody has different sets of eyes and nobody's ever made the thing you're making before. So that, so anybody who says you should have done this, they don't necessarily know what they're talking about because they've never made the thing you made because only you made the thing you made. But the kind of rules and pre-rulings that we see online about visual design are essentially a form of here's how to fix a thing I've never made. Mm-hmm. Sometimes that stuff can be valuable in the sense that it does provide, hey, here's a here's a wrench at a size you didn't know existed. Yeah. But if you don't have any lug nuts that that, that that wrench fits, that's just somebody handing you a piece of metal. That doesn't do you any good. That might be informed and and brilliant, refined opinion, one could say snobbery, or it might just be snobbery. And the thing is that they don't have to agree with you. You don't have to agree with them. If you say... Well, I'm going to use the seventh font, damn it. Well, then, Nathan and his six and me and my eight, be damned. Yep. I mean, there's there's best practices, right? And, like, those exist for a reason. There's a lot to learn. Like, learning new things is good. So letting people who have been doing it for a long time and have a set of best practices and opinions and methods that work for them, letting that fact stymie you is 
is is bad. Don't don't let that happen. The, Do the a, best you can with what you have, and you'll get better at whatever the part of it is that you're not good at yet. One of the all. one of the metaphors that I like is still about hours logged, and the fact that somebody else has logged a thousand hours making character sheets or laying out books or painting stuff doesn't mean that you shouldn't start logging hours. Mm-hmm. And that's a thing that we that we trick ourselves into believing is not true by saying, well, that person knows what they're doing and they said this other thing. Yeah, well, you may or may not agree with them when you get to a thousand hours. Let's find out. Put in a thousand hours. Yeah. It doesn't mean you don't get to have an opinion until you've done a thousand hours, right? You put in the hours. You, 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 you get the XP. You learn how to do this and you can't learn by not doing it. <laughs> or you try it, you go, this sucks, I don't like it. I'm going to pay someone. I'm going to pay somebody else to do it. Exactly. And then that's part of the production end where you go, okay, I'm going to pay someone to do my character sheet. So I need to plan for that. And you still need to have something to tell them. You still need to have your Excel thing, your hand drawn thing, your, you know, whatever you put together with what you have on hand. Your numbered list, your bulleted list, whatever. You still have all that information that needs to go on the character sheet. You're just adding in the step of, of, you know, hiring someone who presumably enjoys it and has a skill set to do it efficiently and and well. And that's great. Once you realize that commas, bullet point lists, number point lists, tabs, whether or not you're bold facing or italicizing stuff, how you're arranging headers, these sorts of things, you're already thinking visually. Right. You're thinking visually and you're thinking about how to break up information so that people understand what's important. This is the idea of the the read. What what yeah. do people see on the first read, like when they glance at a sheet? What do they see on the second read when they actually look at the words? What do they see on a third read when they actually read from top to bottom? Right. And this is different for a poster than it is for a character sheet than it is for a book. But when you're creating a header and then putting a space under it, you're creating a first read. Oh, here's a new section. Mm -hmm. And then when you actually read the word, then you're finding out what the section is. And then when you read the paragraph underneath it, then you're getting the, the content out of it. Right. So all these different kinds of lists, separators, bold, italicized, underline, all those things are ways of telling first yourself, right? Because at yeah. the beginning, you're writing for yourself. So these are really good ways to code things as you write them. And then when you go back, be like, why did I italicize that? Mm-hmm. Right? Or, oh, th- these two sections are weirdly separate. They're really about the same thing. So first, it's about telling yourself what's important. And then it eventually turns to telling other people what's important. And then it eventually turns into like, how do I express what's important? reliably so that the majority of people who encounter my thing get what I'm going for. Right. If you as a writer or a note taker or whatever have ever made a one line, much less a one word paragraph, then you've already started on this process. Mm -hmm. Right. Those kind of decisions about I've separated this line or this sentence or this phrase or this word into a single paragraph all by itself for punch. That punch is visual. It's Mm -hmm. not just content. It's not as far a leap to start thinking about this stuff as it might feel like it is for some people because it can be intimidating. I know it was for mm-hmm. me. Not so much in that I I do think this way kind of on my own, but thinking that it was okay for me to do it in my own designs early in the process, that was kind of tricky for me because I, I was trained primarily in a place where first you do this, then you do the art direction, then you do the layout and all that stuff happens mm-hmm. in an order. And that order serves a good purpose, but it's not necessarily too late to start thinking about some of these things, even if you don't have to commit to them until later. Yeah, separating out where you want to go eventually from where you are now is also yeah. really valuable. Eventually, I'm going to write up every kingdom in my setting in a paragraph and have a map and yeah. whatever those goals are, that's fine. And then you can prioritize, like, is it time for me to write those yet? Or can I keep these placeholder kingdom name one, kingdom name two things in my document so I don't forget, but I still really need to finish out the 
evolution mechanics that are core to the game experience. Right. All these things are interrelated and just as you can go back to your visual inspiration mm-hmm. over and over to realign what you're where you're going with what you're getting. You can go back to your textual early drafts. You can go back to the sketches you made. Um, you can go back to the concept art that you pulled. You can go back to all these things to continue incorporating them into your process and having some goals in mind and giving yourself permission to change them if you need to, but having somewhere to go, having a destination, even if you do end up taking a different way there or changing exactly where it's located, just makes it so much easier to make decisions along that path and narrow down the the choices as you keep going forward. Thanks for listening to the Design Games Podcast. Sometimes our conversations wander a bit afield, and so we package them as backer-only special episodes for our Patreon backers and supporters. To hear these episodes for yourself, visit patreon.com slash ndpauletta or patreon.com slash wordwill. You can find all of our older episodes, as well as everything else Design Games Podcast related, at designgamespodcast.com. What do people even say at the end of a podcast? What happens if it just...